Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. So as life in the Australian public service continues to move at a scorching pace in delivering the priorities of the government, the increasing influence of digital technology and data in defining new ways of working in order to deliver value for citizens has never been more important. At the heart of this transformation is the mission to make the lives of Australians simpler, safer and better. Now, nowhere is this mission more obvious or more important than the work of the National Disability Insurance Agency, which is implementing a program to deliver individualised, self-directed care packages to over a half a million Australians. The man with his hands on the steering wheel is Martin Hoffman. Martin was appointed to the position of the Chief Executive Officer of the NDIA in November of 2019. He has previously held senior positions in the APS in the Department of Industry and Science and Prime Minister and Cabinet and was the Secretary of the Department of Finance, Services and Innovation in New South Wales from 2015 to 2019. Prior to that, Martin worked in the private sector, mainly in digital media and technology, holding senior roles with Optus, the Garvin Institute of Medical Research and Fairfax Media. He was also, for a few years, the Chief Executive Officer of Nine MSN. Interestingly, after the last federal election, he came back into the APS as the head of the Services Australia Task Force, which is where I would like to begin our conversation today. So, Martin Hoffman, welcome to Work With Purpose. David, thank you very much. Great to be with you. So, listen, what is the secret if the Australian public service is to become more citizen or customer-centric? Ah oh, well, that would be the the magic uh, the magic test, etc. Look, I think uh, the Australian public service and public services around the country uh, generally do a pretty good job in exactly that, um, and they get ranked and rated differently. But uh, there's certainly no lack of of will and no lack of intent. People sign up, and there is a tremendous sense of mission and purpose amongst uh, APS in whatever agency you are. It might be particularly the case in agencies that have that direct, tangible uh, service and care component to, to them, but it's true across the board. So that's a great foundation to build on. Um, you've then got to say, of course, that, you know, and that's one of the great things about, I find, working in the public sector is, uh, it is just complex and there is a lot of ambiguity going on. You're trying to uh, deal with a number of things, be it the direction of the government, be it budget processes, be it uh, governance and control processes, audit processes, procurement processes, all those things have to be balanced and sometimes they aren't you know, completely uh, optimal, one might say, for delivering uh, perfect uh, or focusing solely on uh, 
citizen centricity or customer service or delighting the, the citizen, etc. But I think overall, there's no doubt that the intent is there, the understanding is there, and within in the constraints that the system has, and many of those constraints are there for a very good reason, uh, the, the APS as, as a whole uh, is doing pretty well on that. And we see that in this, some of the international comparisons, uh, some of the uh, citizen satisfaction surveys that are done and so on. So when you came back into that role in that Services Australia task force, coming back from uh, New South Wales and the experiences with Services New South Wales, what did you see that was a contrast, that was a difference from working in at, at a state government level in service delivery and then observing what was happening at a, at a federal level? Well, um, the fundamental difference, and this is, again, to, in some ways to sort of defend the APS, um, Service New South Wales is an amazing achievement and it's recognised around the world. And, you know, when I was there, we would have you know, visiting crews from uh, the public sectors in different countries, you know, in every month, uh, wanting to see what had been been done. But you have to remember that most of the services that the state provides, that a state provides through something like Service New South Wales, are things where the citizen pays the government money and gets something valuable in return. So the citizen comes in and renews their driver's license and gets the right to drive and uh, a form of identification, registers their car or their boat or their caravan, and then can use that piece of equipment or renews their uh, trade license as a plumber or an electrician and so can do their, their, do their work. So it's the citizen paying government and receiving a tangible uh, benefit or right in return and it's actually very easy to conceive of that in customer transaction terms and say, uh, we can really make that experience better. We can delight the customer. We can make it quicker, easier. We can recognize the customer, uh, know who they are, know what other licenses are coming up. We can uh, remind them that they've got to renew by this date because we, we know that. And you can really see how that can, uh, you can find a whole variety of ways to deliver a customer service in that sense. But when you come to something like Service Australia or uh, DHS, Department of Human Services, as it was known, uh, in some ways the transactions are reversed. There it is the government giving money to the citizen if that citizen uh, meets and maintains certain criteria, be it age, disability, pensions, uh, be it unemployment benefits and the various obligations that go along with, with that. And so it's quite a different transaction in the sense that uh, there's much more about needing to check eligibility uh, and the maintenance of eligibility. There's a higher control environment because it's taxpayers' money that is being paid out. So the sorts of transactions are fundamentally different and you know, that's a really important point to, to realise. Having said that, of course, you know, some of the basics are absolutely the same and should be in terms of uh, you know, speed of service, uh, quality of service, the ability to join up systems so that you have, it's not so much um, government having a single view of the citizen, 
some citizens are, are wary of that, but it's more giving the citizen a single view of government or a single view of their interactions with government. And so that's the direction that the, that the MyGov platform is heading in for, for example. And when you get those sorts of underpinning underlying capabilities, uh, you really start to be able to do a much better job. So in terms of that sort of compliance mindset versus customer service mindset, again, how what are the cultural elements that you need to be able to, to get the performance that you need out of your teams in order to deliver um, for Australians, um, taking into account exactly what you said before around that complexity and ambiguity and, and requirements that public services have to stick to the rules in many ways? Yeah, I mean, it's a really important point. And um, again, it's a matter of balance because yeah, it's not as if uh, there aren't compliance requirements at the state level either. Uh, you want to give the driver's license to the right people and not be giving out uh, driver's licenses in false names. Uh, you want to make sure that the plumber who gets his uh, plumbing license is actually qualified and capable and uh, doing a good job and you know not going to leave your bathroom in a mess if he's if he's the one who come or she's the one who come and does does the work so there are compliance bits on on both sides so it is important to uh understand the 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 balance that you're trying to achieve there i think it's helpful to um be clear about the roles of different teams and different areas uh and one might be focusing more on you know uh the speed and quality of uh interactions Others, you'll have a dedicated uh, compliance or investigation or enforcement area. So a degree of specialization uh, can can help. Um, there's also just that, that mindset that in compliance, you want some sort of graduated pyramid, as it were, uh, where you're assuming that, and I think validly assuming, that the great majority of people uh, want to comply with their obligations. Uh, and so a lot of it comes down to, well, are those obligations clear? Are they able to be understood and communicated? Are you making it easy to comply? Uh, and so so on, uh, rather than starting from a mindset of um, if everyone's trying to rip off the uh, rip off the government. Mm. So listen, you you were in charge of that services Australia task force, but then moved into this role that you have now as the of the head of the NDIA. Um, what was your first impressions when you arrived at the NDA in terms of how the actual national disability insurance scheme was operating and, and serving the needs of the disability community? Well, it was uh, doing a, a good job, uh, had a tremendous ambition. There was tremendous goodwill uh, in the agency and in the wider sector with people wanting it to be successful. Uh, and that was one of the first big big uh, things that I, I found. Uh, the scale of the task that had been taken on though was was really huge in that um, in a few short years, we were attempting to build a whole new agency, build a whole new system, bring hundreds of thousands of people across from uh, their existing programs and supports and systems at a state level that they may have been involved with and using for decades uh, into a new system, into a new agency. We were then changing the way their service providers, 
the way their business models worked across the whole sector, whereas previously the, the provider had received funding from governments. Now we'd switched the funding flow and the, the funds were going to the participant, to the person with disability, who then engaged uh, with, with providers. And so the extent and ambition of the change was just huge. And probably not surprisingly in, in that, it meant that um, some of the the systems, the processes, the, the timeliness uh, was challenged. And so the government went to the last election with a promise of a participant service guarantee to actually legislate uh, some time standards and some approaches to, to this. But even before that legislation uh, was uh, drafted and you know it's uh, to come into parliament this year after having been delayed because of COVID last year, uh, we were making significant improvements in the wait lists and backlogs across the board. Uh, and you know that's really made a huge difference to uh, people's experience of the system, that they aren't waiting now as they used to uh, for, for months for decisions to be made, for funds to flow, for supports to be, be right. Now, look, that's not to mean when you're dealing with uh, a system that is trying to provide individualized, customized services for uh, approaching 450,000 people now right across Australia. That doesn't mean that we get everything right every day, uh, but we've certainly seen significant improvements over the past year. It it beggars belief, really, thinking about the complexity and the challenge that you've just described, and then you introduce... Um, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, can you tell me that story as to what happened inside the NDIA and inside the whole system, really, as you move to adapt to what would now be completely different circumstances? Well, that's right. Um, and it certainly was a challenge, but the disability sector actually performed, and I say the sector, not just the agency, but the entire sector actually performed extraordinarily well. And uh, rates of infection and uh, death rates, uh, you know, which are very low in Australia overall, but are even lower proportionately uh, amongst people with disability is really a, a credit to, to them and to the, the, the sector, the, the, the provider sector itself. I think. What do you put that down to, as, <clears throat> as a matter of interest? Uh, I, th I put it down to a few things. Firstly, the the genuine uh, care that is there in the sector, the genuine personal relationships that are built up, the fact that um, we've already moved a long way away from the very large scale institutional settings. So the average disability residential uh, home. Uh, is, you know, has potentially four or maybe five, uh, or it's probably even a little bit smaller than that, three, three to four uh, people with disability on average. That's a very different structure and than aged care facilities, which can have uh, average residence numbers, you know, above 50, above 100. Uh, so there's a real structural difference there. Uh, it's also just a much more diverse uh, population. You know, there are obviously people in uh, residential 
homes uh, or facilities or group homes, uh, range of phrases. Um, but there's also many people with disability living in the community by themselves or with, with, with family, uh, and that creates a difference as, as well. Of course, many, many of our participants are actually children living with uh, families. And I think it's also a huge credit to uh, the care and love and dedication that so many parents give to uh, their, their their children with disability. I mean, it was extraordinarily hard, particularly in uh, Victoria, Melbourne during lockdown, uh, when there was necessarily disruption to some of the services uh, that may have been delivered um, for families. But um, you know, it's a credit to the way, uh, as I said, the dedication and love that is is there in the sector. I think some of the providers also responded quite innovatively, and we saw a, a huge shift in the provision of services to video means. Uh, and you know, dance classes that were done in groups were now done on on video, uh, two-way video, and of course, everybody became an expert in Zoom and Teams, etc. Et um, and those, the pivoting that providers showed in the restructuring the way they delivered some of their services and supports uh, was really quite innovative and I think made a big difference to people. I think this point that you've raised really uh, around a sector and the performance of the sector and the role not only of government but of providers and the recipients, etc., is quite interesting and important, I think, as we sort of move to this next phase of dealing with the pandemic and rolling through it over the next few years, because it's really going to be government as a participant in the in the sector and needing to adapt and to change. What experience or what advice perhaps would you be able to offer other people working inside the APS as government becomes, you know, much more a part of a sector, much more joined up and much more connected as we, you know, deal with the challenges of, you know, the next stage of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I think um, it's important to try and be clear about the roles that you're playing. And, you know, government plays many different roles from being the funder or the purchaser of services, uh, and they're, they're different things as well. Uh, we are the funder of services, but we're not the purchaser. The, the individual participant is the purchaser. Uh, we can be a regulator uh, and uh, a quality and safeguards provider as well. Um, and so we have a, a sister agency um, called the Quality and Safeguards Commission for the N NDIS. So we've uh, separated those, those functions from the agency operating the scheme to the Quality and Safeguards Commission uh, providing the regulatory function for the scheme. So I think uh, some clarity and at times separation of roles and functions is Im important. Um, and being clear internally with yourself, but then also excellent with the sector about what roles and responsibilities uh, you are taking on and which ones you are, you are not. Now, of course, that can be a challenge as well because ultimately people often start to think, well, you know, if it goes wrong, government must be responsible. And um, so, you know, you might think you've got responsibility if only going this far, but when it goes goes wrong, you know, you're going to be responsible or at least blamed uh, for it going that far further. 
So just being aware of that upfront, uh, um, you know, is a pretty important thing. But it's interesting, um, in a, a recent speech that you gave to CEDAR, you, you actually called that out in terms of communications and the, um, the importance of communication. So again, what's your advice in that space in terms of um, government agencies being able to, you know, clearly define and communicate roles and responsibilities so as that there is an understanding of what government can do and can't do and what its role and responsibility might be in the operation of the sector? Yeah, I think that's uh, a really interesting point. And look, um, you know, I would never say that we get it right or I, I get it right all the time at all, that we couldn't be doing it better. Uh, but I think, uh, and this, you know, suits, suits my personal style as well, um, I, I do believe citizens are sophisticated consumers of communications these days and know when it's spin or fluff. Um, and being sort of overly positive in in your me- messaging uh, doesn't work. Um, and so being director and clearer, you know, saying no early, uh, answering the question in the piece of Coro that the person wrote, even if you think they might not like that answer, uh, is going to go a lot further than giving the generic um, positive talking points. Um, another example of that is, uh, and again, this is well known, but and I'm not saying we do it perfectly all the time either, but being clearer about what is consultation and what is communication. You know, when when are you announcing what something is going to be and when are you general, genuinely saying, um, tell us what you think because we haven't decided everything yet. Uh, and not mixing up when you're communicating or informing and when you're consulting or even co-designing, uh, because th- those things all exist on a on a continuum, uh, I think is pretty important th- th- these days. I think we saw that in, you know, to go circle back to the COVID situation, we saw that with the very open communication that was there from Commonwealth and state governments, where every day, uh, and, you know, they sometimes came in for criticism, but every day the premiers were there giving all the numbers, you know, and not just the numbers of cases, but the numbers in hospital, the numbers in ICU, the capacity of ICU that was used up, you know, every, the number of tests that were done, the positive results, et cetera, the, the negative results, every bit of data was out there, uh, day after day and you know there were people building their own spreadsheets and their own models and some, so forth and i think that gave a lot of confidence that um well we were getting the data and then yes there'd be commentary about it but people could look at their own data and do their own uh, assessment of, of the trends and you know the forecast etc i think that actually made a real difference so how do you build confidence in your staff then to to be more forthright, to be more open, to, you know, encourage them to perhaps make decisions, um, take risks. Uh, how, how, what's your method in terms of building that capability into your organisation such that the trust uh, between you and uh, the recipients of the uh, National Disability Insurance Scheme uh, can have with, with government as a, uh, uh, an organiser of the system? 
Yeah, no, it's a great question, David. And again, I you know I never like to say, well, look, I'm I'm perfect and I do it super well and uh, etc. But um, you know the the way you create that in an organization has to start with the way you personally act and the way you personally uh, in, interact with with staff. So. Um, you know, like a lot of staff, like a lot of leaders, you know, I do a, a weekly email to the whole organization. Uh, I write it myself, put a fair bit of thought into the sort of messaging, trying constantly to uh, be more direct, be as open as I can, be as honest as I can, you know, use the active voice, not passive voice, uh, use uh, Anglo-Saxon words rather than Latin derived words, uh, keep it simpler. I, I don't, don't mean those sort of Anglo-Saxon words. I mean um, you know, one-syllable words uh, like, you know, stop rather than cessation, uh, for example, uh, is, you know, it's a, it's a small joke, but I mean, it's it goes to the point about trying to be uh, direct and, and clear. Um, when, when staff from across the country e- email me, you know, I read every one of those emails and I answer them myself. It takes up time, but what you're hoping is that the that, that impact to one person has a ripple effect when they say, gee, I emailed the CEO and I got an email back, even though I'm in the Bendigo office in um, Victoria and he's never been, been here. Um, so, uh, being consistent in the communications. You know, when I'm sick of talking about something, it's probably true that, you know, some of the staff are just hearing it for the first time or are just believing that he's going to, he really means it and he's going to keep talking about this because you know, he never shuts up about it. Uh, so that sort of consistency of messaging uh, rather than jumping from one thing to the next uh, the whole time uh, is super important. I think it goes to that that balance that, Staff want, they want confidence, particularly in the sort of COVID crisis, they want confidence and positivity that it's going to be all right, that the agency is going to get through this, that our participants are going to be all right, that, you know, we're going, we're going to cope. So they want to see the leader, the manager with confidence and positivity. But the sort of the, the paradox is they also want reality. You know, they want the truth, the brutal facts. Um, and it's sometimes referred to as the Stockdale par- paradox. You know, this idea that you've got to maintain an absolute faith that you'll be successful uh, while still confronting the brutal reality as to how bad the situation today m- might might be. Uh, because you know, people know when IT systems are broken or slow, or when they know when processes are silly and get in the way, um, and trying to spin that just uh, makes it worse. Just a, f- a final final question, if I may, just, um, and it probably goes back to the to the introduction where we I spoke about digital technology and, and the use of data, and this is really in your wheelhouse as someone who really has come um, through the, the, the digital technology um, uh, customer experience uh, expertise in many of your jobs, both in the private sector, I might add, and and the public sector. What is your observations, really, and um, perhaps some of you know, if you're looking sort of 12, 18 months into the future, not just in your role at the ND, NDIA, but more broadly about the impacts of technology and data, and how can the APS get ready to be effective at a time of 
continued and, and, and massive change, whether it be at a local level, a national level, a geopolitical level, you know, in different sectors, there's so much going on. How indeed can the APS wrap its arms around the, the technology and data opportunity in order to deliver for all Australians? Well, it's a, it's a huge question and challenge and opportunity. And, uh, you know, I don't think I'm not sure I have a, a super profound answer to it. I mean, there is no doubt that we're still a little caught between, on the one hand, the very real and genuine concerns about uh, privacy and misuse of data and uh, government knowing too too much, um, and on the other hand, the real opportunities and benefits for genuinely better service and engagement that uh, data and technology can de deliver. And you know, there's no simple pat answer to that. That's an ongoing tension and balance that has to be managed constantly, uh, and. You know, we need to bring in you know the hard thinking of of ethics uh, and and purpose and intent and disclosure uh, right the way through, or we won't get that that right. Um, there is then secondly just a, a genuine um, need for for skill uh, upgrading, and you're seeing the APS in particular trying to uh, do that with the um, appointment of uh, leaders uh, for particular uh, skill sets and capabilities across the sector as a whole uh, and wanting to uh, invest in that. I think, um, you know, we send signals by the sort of people who get promoted, by the sort of backgrounds and skill sets that they, that they have. Uh, and so you would want to see, you would expect to see if we were really going to grasp the opportunity, as you said, uh, that leaders uh, come with some capability uh, in uh, data, in service delivery, in an understanding of, of what that actually takes uh, as much as sort of high-level policy. Still, the third thing to say on that would be, um, you know, it is important that um, uh, we do investment, you know, IT and tech investment well. Um, and um, there are different ways these days to do that. Um, the massive IT pro projects that, um, you know, are hundreds of millions of dollars long and are set up as IT pro projects, I think there is a growing understanding that um, that's not the way to do it. Uh, we're getting that experience from around the world. I don't want to use the buzzwords of agile and all that sort of stuff, but what I'm really saying is, um, you need to start with the data models themselves uh, and then you really need to see it not as a project that you fund this project and uh, it finishes in a certain time, be it three years or five years, and then you go back to business as usual, but that we fund products uh, and we fund teams and that is ongoing as they iterate uh, the software constantly. The best tech companies, you know, uh, consumer tech companies, don't do IT projects you know, at all. They have a product uh, that is constantly being iterated and updated uh, and en enhanced. And we need that some of that same mi mindset. It was once explained to me that 
uh, you'll know when the government is getting there when uh, there are more jobs advertised for product managers than project managers. Uh, and I think that that's a change that shows an organization is starting to mature in its use of tech uh, for uh, for digital outcomes and for customer service benefits. A final question then, perhaps just back to the NDIA. Looking forward 12, 18 months, what are your priorities? Um, what are your challenges and, and what are your opportunities? What are the things that you're going to be focused on? Perhaps the, the key three things that you're going to focus on in this next 12 to 18 month period in order to, again, deliver for um, those in the disability community? Well, you know, we are right in the, the midst of a, of a major reform of, of the scheme, you know, which sounds uh, sounds strange in some ways, but I mean, we've finished the phase of um, building the scheme and getting, said, almost 450,000 Australians, uh, 200,000 of which are receiving supports for the very first time uh, into the scheme. Uh, and so the great rush to get people access and then to get them their first plan uh, is, is abating now. And we're really turning to, well, what does the experience actually look like and how do we make the scheme sustainable Because uh, as an insurance scheme going, going forward? Because uh, the needs and the goals of people with disability, like everybody, uh, um, you know, keep uh, increasing. Uh, and we've got to get the balance right in terms of how we have a sustainable scheme. So. We've got a big program of reform moving to what are called independent assessments and then to personal budgets. Uh, this is a, uh, be honest about it, a controversial reform. Uh, not all of the sector is supportive of this direction. So our challenge and opportunity is to, in many ways, try and do some of the things I've spoken about uh, in this conversation. Uh, and that is be honest about what we're communicating and what we're consulting on. Uh, be honest about purpose and intent uh, rather than spin and, and fluff uh, and try the basics of um, say what you're going to do and then do what, what you say. So if we're successful, we will see a quite different scheme again in a year's time a scheme that is, uh, has fewer rules, uh, has fewer requirements for people to come to a public servant and beg or bargain for the things they want and need, uh, but really lives up to the aspiration of the scheme, which was about saying people are the experts in their own lives. Uh, people with disability and their families know best the supports that are going to make a difference in their lives, give them the best opportunity to live an, an ordinary life or an, an extraordinary life. And so an ever bigger rule book as to what things we will fund and won't fund and how much of this and how much of that is one way the scheme can evolve. The other way it can uh, evolve is to a, a clearer, simpler structure of a reasonable and necessary personal budget and then fewer rules as to how that is is used uh, to to pursue the the goals that the participant sets 
So that's a huge challenge. We've got to build a new computer system. We've got to change uh, the legislation. We have to change uh, rules and operating guidelines. We've got to train staff. Uh, we've got to change uh, the the approach that our partners who deliver the scheme with us apply as well. Uh, so it's really uh, rebuilding the scheme. Um, John, John Walsh, the, the founder of the scheme in many ways, wrote the original Productivity Commission report and was then on the board for 10, 10 years. He said, Martin, this is exactly what the scheme was meant to be, be like. Uh, it's much harder doing it when you've got 450,000 participants than when than when we had 50,000. Uh, but that's the that's the challenge we've we've got. Uh, and um, perhaps we will we can have have a chat in a year's time and uh, we'll see how it's gone. No, I I look forward to to that opportunity and perhaps again just on indulgence a a final question and perhaps a more personal question. Uh, what have you reflected on or what have you learnt about yourself as you've undertaken this massive transformation at a time of a, a global pandemic? What are some of the things that have come home to you that you've understand more about who you are and why you do what you do? Uh, again, you know, you're probably looking for something deeply profound at this point. Uh, and I may well disappoint <laughs> you in that, in that sense. Um, I think... Uh, Certainly, what I've learned in general is the, um, you know, the deep ability that uh, we all have and that the public servants have to respond in a crisis and a challenge. You know, um, there's no doubt about that. I joke sometimes that you know, if the board had have said, Martin, we'll get, we'll give you a week, and then we want 80% of people working from home uh, and no loss of productivity. Yeah, you know, I just would have laughed and said, you know, you're dreaming. But of course, that's exactly what we did and what organisations all across the country did. Um, so I've certainly learnt that uh, personally that, um, you know, don't underestimate the ability of people and your organisation to respond when the challenge, the the need uh, and the opportunity is, is, is clear. Uh, and you can never spend you know, too much time uh, helping people to uh, see and believe and know that. Uh, and then they can and will respond in ways that you know, constantly surprise and, and amaze you. But the obvious follow-up question then is, and again on indulgence, um, yeah. how do you keep that behaviour when the crisis is absent? Yeah, no, that's uh, exactly right. I mean, and um, that does come down to uh, the focus, I think, on the purpose of the organisation, uh, that that is still a, it's not a crisis, but it's still super important and super motivating. Uh, and uh, keep that external focus. You know, we t use the cliche of customer-centric, but, you know, um, if we're not focused on what does this mean for the participant, as we say, or what does it mean for the customer, or what does it mean for the citizen, then, you know, we do get internally focused and we start worrying about the small p politics and, the, you know, what's going on in the organisation and et cetera. Um, so, you know, that that people want to come to work uh, because it's Im important uh, and helping it make it Im important getting rid of the roadblocks, the silly little things that get in the way, 
that's a big part of the job. Well, Martin, best of luck with that. Best of luck with the transformation and uh, congratulations on uh, your accomplishments there, uh, not just at the NDIA, but throughout your uh, public service career. You've obviously made a, a, a wonderful contribution to to the Australian population through many years uh, across all sorts of uh, parts of the, uh, not only the bureaucracy, but the economy as well. And thank you very much for that service that you've given to the Australian people. David, uh, thank you for that. And uh, thanks for the chance to talk with you today. So ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Another episode of Work With Purpose and an inspiring episode, I think, there uh, with Martin Hoffman. What a wonderful task and what a great attitude and wonderful advice there, I think. And again, I think there's so much in that interview that we've just done that uh, can be applied more broadly across the APS. And really, uh, it is one APS and I think there's a lot to be learnt uh, out of what the NDIA are doing. Uh, a big thanks, as always, to IPA. Uh, and it, interestingly, um, Martin Hoffman used to be the IPA president and is a fellow of IPA. Uh, he was the president in New South Wales, so good on him for doing that as well. And also a big thanks to uh, the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing support for Work With Purpose. Thanks also to the team at Content Group for helping to get this episode to air once again. So that's it for Work With Purpose for this fortnight. We'll be back in 14 days with the next episode. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. 